Section 35 of The Art of Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Grenholm. The Art of Letters by Robert Lind. Roman 20, Georgians. Arabic 3, The Young Satirists satire it has been said is an ignoble art and it is probable that there are no satirists in heaven probably there are no doctors either satire and medicine are our responses to a diseased world to our diseased selves they are responses however that make for health satire holds the medicine glass up to human nature it also holds the mirror up in a limited way it does not show a man what he looks like when he is both well and good. It does show a man what he looks like, however, when he breaks out into spots or goes yellow, pale, or mottled as a result of making a beast of himself. It reflects only sick men, but it reflects them with a purpose. It would be a crime to permit it if the world were a hospital for incurables to write satire is an act of faith not a luxurious exercise the despairing swift was a fighter as the despairing anatole france is a fighter they may have uttered the very z of melancholy about the animal called man but at least they were sufficiently optimistic to write satires and to throw themselves into defeated causes it would be too much to expect of satire that it alone will cure mankind of the disease of war it is a good sign however that satires on war have begun to be written war has affected with horror or disgust a number of great imaginative writers in the last two or three thousand years the tragic indictment of war in the trojan women and the satiric indictment in the voyage to the hinhinums are evidence that some men at least saw through the romance of war before the twentieth century in the war that has just ended however or that would have ended if the peace conference would let it we have seen an imaginative revolt against war not on the part of mere men of letters but on the part of soldiers ballads have survived from other wars depicting the plight of the mutilated soldier left to beg you haven't an arm and you haven't a leg you're an eyeless noseless chickenless egg you ought to be put in a bowl to beg oh johnny i hardly knew you but the recent war has produced a literature of indictment basing itself neither on the woes of women nor on the wrongs of ex-soldiers, but on the right of common men not to be forced into mutual murder by statesmen who themselves never killed anything more formidable than a pheasant. Soldiers, or some of them, see that wars go on only because the people who cause them do not realize what war is like. I do not mean to suggest that the kings, statesmen, and journalists who bring wars about would not themselves take part in the fighting, rather than that there should be no fighting at all. The people who cause wars, however, are ultimately the people who endure kings, statesmen, and journalists of the exploiting and bullying kind. 
the satire of the soldiers is an appeal not to the statesmen and journalists but to the general imagination of mankind it is an attempt to drag our imaginations away from the heroics of the senate house into the filth of the slaughterhouse it does not deny the heroism that exists in the slaughterhouse any more than it denies the heroism that exists in the hospital ward but it protests that just as the heroism of a man dying of cancer must not be taken to justify cancer so the heroism of a million men dying of war must not be taken to justify war there are some who believe that neither war nor cancer is a curable disease one thing we can be sure of in this connection we shall never get rid either of war or of cancer if we do not learn to look at them realistically and see how loathsome they are so long as war was regarded as inevitable the poet was justified in romanticizing it as in that epigram in the greek anthology Demetia sent eight sons to encounter the phalanx of the foe and she buried them all beneath one stone no tear did she shed in her mourning but said this only ho sparta i bore these children for thee Close quote. as soon as it is realized however that wars are not inevitable men cease to idealize demetia unless they are sure she did her best to keep the peace to a realistic poet of war such as mr sassoon she is an object of pity rather than praise his sonnet glory of women suggests that there is another point of view besides demetia's you love us when we're heroes home on leave or wounded in a mentionable place you worship decorations you believe that chivalry redeems the war's disgrace you make us shells you listen with delight by tales of dirt and danger fondly thrilled you crown our distant ardors while we fight and mourn our laurelled memories when we're killed you can't believe that british troops retire when hell's last horror breaks them and they run trampling the terrible corpses blind with blood o oh, german mother dreaming by the fire while you are knitting socks to send your son his face is trodden deeper in the mud to mr sassoon and the other war satirists indeed those who stay at home and incite others to go out and kill or get killed seem either pitifully stupid or pervertedly criminal mr sassoon has now collected all his war poems into one volume and one is struck by the energetic hatred of those who make war in safety that finds expression in them most readers will remember the bitter joy of the dream that one day he might hear quote, the yellow pressman grunt and squeal close quote, and see the yunkers driven out of parliament by the returned soldiers mr sassoon cannot endure the enthusiasm of the stay-at-home especially the enthusiasm that pretends that soldiers not only behave like music-hall clowns but are incapable of the more terrible emotional experiences he would like i fancy to forbid civilians to make jokes during wartime his hatred of the jesting civilian attains passionate expression in the poem called blighters the house is crammed 
tier beyond tier they grin and cackle at the show while prancing ranks of harlots shrill the chorus drunk with din we're sure the kaiser loves the dear old tanks i'd like to see a tank come down the stalls lurching to ragtime tunes or home sweet home and there'd be no more jokes in music halls to mock the riddled corpses round Bapom. Mr. Sassoon himself laughs on occasion, but it is the laughter of a man being driven insane by an insane world. The spectacle of lives being thrown away by the hundred thousand, by statesmen and generals, without the capacity to run a village flower show, makes him find relief now and then in a hysteria of mirth as in the general good morning good morning the general said when we met him last week on our way to the line now the soldiers he smiled at are most of em dead and were cursing his staff for incompetent swine he's a cheery old card grunted harry to jack as they slogged up to arras with rifle and pack but he did for them both by his plan of attack mr sassoon's verse is also of importance because it paints life in the trenches with a realism not to be found elsewhere in the english poetry of the war he spares us nothing of quote, the strangled horror and butchered frantic gestures of the dead Close quote. He gives us every detail of the filth, the dullness, and the agony of the trenches. His book is, in its aim, destructive. It is a great pamphlet against war. If posterity wishes to know what war was like during this period, it will discover the truth not in barrack room ballads, but in Mr. Sassoon's verse. The best poems in the book are poems of hatred. This means that Mr. Sassoon has still other worlds to conquer in poetry. His poems have not the constructive ardor that we find in the revolutionary poems of Shelley. They are utterances of pain rather than of vision. Many of them, however, rise to a noble pity. The prelude, for instance, and aftermath, the latter of which ends, quote, do you remember the dark months you held the sector at Mametz, the night you watched and wired and dug and piled sandbags on the parapets? Do you remember the rats and the stench of corpses rotting in front of the front-line trench, and dawn coming, dirty white, and chill with a hopeless rain? Do you ever stop and ask, is it all going to happen again? Do you remember that hour of din before the attack, and the anger, the blind compassion that seized and shook you then, as you peered at the doomed and haggard faces of your men? Do you remember the stretcher cases, lurching back with dying eyes and lolling heads, those ashen-gray masks of the lads who once were keen and kind and gay? Have you forgotten yet? Look up and swear by the green of the spring that you'll never forget. Close quote. Mr. Sitwell's satires, which occupy the most interesting pages of Argonaut and Juggernaut, seldom take us into the trenches. 
mr sitwell gets all the subjects he wants in london clubs and drawing-rooms these free verse satires do not lend themselves readily to quotation but both the manner and the mood of them can be guessed from the closing verses of war horses in which the septuagenarian butterflies of society return to their platitudes and parties after seeing the war through Quote, but now they have come out they have preened and dried themselves after their blood-bath old men seem a little younger and tortoise-shell combs are longer than ever earrings weigh down aged ears and golconda has given them of its best they have seen it through theirs is the triumph and beneath the carved smile of the mona lisa false teeth rattle like machine-guns in anticipation of food and platitudes la vieille dame sans merci mr sitwell's hatred of war is seldom touched with pity it is arrogant hatred there is little emotion in it but that of a young man at war with age he pictures the dotards of two thousand years ago complaining that christ did not die quote, like a hero with an oath on his lips or the refrain from a comic song or a cheerful comment of some kind Close quote. his own verse however seems to me to be hardly more in sympathy with the spirit of christ than with the spirit of those who mocked him he is moved to write by unbelief in the ideals of other people rather than by the passionate force of ideals of his own he is a skeptic not a sufferer his work proceeds less from his heart than from his brain it is a clever brain however and his satirical poems are harshly entertaining and will infuriate the right people they may not kill goliath but at least they will annoy goliath's friends david's weapon it should be remembered was a sling with some pebbles from the brook not a pea-shooter the truth is so far as i can see mr sitwell has not begun to take poetry quite seriously his non-satirical verse is full of bright color but it has the brightness not of the fields and the flowers but of captive birds in an aviary it is as though mr sitwell has taken poetry for his hobby i suspect his argonauts of being ballet dancers he enjoys amusing little decorations phrases such as quote, concertina waves close quote, and quote, the ocean at a toy shore yaps like a pekingese close quote. his moonlit owl is surely a pretty creature from the unreality of a ballet quote, an owl horned wizard of the night flaps through the air so soft and still moaning its wings in flight far from the forest cool to find the star-entangled surface of a pool where it may drink its fill of stars at the same time here and there are evidences that mr sitwell has felt as well as fancied the opening verse of pierrot old gives us a real impression of shadows quote, the harvest moon is at its height the evening primrose greets its light with grace and joy then opens up the mimic moon within its cup tall trees as high as babel tower 
throw down their shadows to the flower shadows that shiver seem to see an ending to infinity but there is too much of pan the fawns and all those other ballet dancers in his verse mr sitwell's muse wears some pretty costumes but one wonders when she will begin to live for something besides clothes end of section thirty five recording by gary grenholm